0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 32G, an interview on Eleanor Roosevelt with David Michaelis. I'm excited to welcome David Michaelis to the show today. David is the author of the 2021 New York Times bestseller, Eleanor, a biography about Eleanor Roosevelt. This most enduring of popular ladies is who we are going to talk about today. Thank you for your time, David.
1: Thank you for having me, Kenny, and thank you for bringing Eleanor
0: into the mix. Appreciate it. Now, when most Americans think of Eleanor, they think of a very modern, independent woman who is a champion of progressive causes. And the first question I have for you is, is that real or is that us projecting modern values onto Eleanor?
1: Excellent question, because, you know, she's one of the figures that we project everything onto. People... (laughs) use Eleanor to because she represented so many factions so many causes so many parts of our pluralistic society people grab her for what they want but the thing about your question is that's important is that it was real she was a highly independent modern woman and as a first lady there had never been anything like her and it wasn't that she was only a champion as you say of you know, progressive causes. She was a champion of you and me and of all of us. She made it her job to serve as intermediary between you and your government. That's really the the key to understanding what made her so different right away was that people came to the president, but Mrs. Roosevelt came to you. And she came to your town. She went to your prison. She went to your barracks. You know, she many other places that were previously regarded as the never as the interest or the duty of the first lady of the United States. That's where you found Eleanor, down in the mines, up in the air, uh, everywhere. And at all times she came and she asked questions about things that were your concerns, your private struggles, your, you know, previously regarded as the business, not of first ladies or of government. And she wanted to know and she genuinely asked and cared. About your answers, and she was a power listener uh the way great the great people are. uh she had a deafness in her left ear, and actually what that as that developed over her life, what it made her do was be that much more attentive if you If you don't have the full capacity of your ears, you actually learn to read people's lips, you learn to look very carefully at them as they're talking. All those were part of Eleanor's almost uncanny attention. That she brought to individuals as she made her way uh, across and through the country. It it meant that her independence and her modernity became the independence and the modernity of, of Americans liberating themselves from the horrors of the Great Depression. Um, you know, the, the Great Depression was really a sort of um, deflation of the individual. It was people were stranded, people were stuck, people were afraid, people were, were fearful. And Eleanor's You know, almost intrepid, you know, uh, momentum brought people along, made them feel that they there's a sort of paradigm of when she first flew to the um, to the West Coast. It was the first time a first lady had made a transcontinental uh, voyage like that uh, in the air. And I always imagine, you know, somebody in the Midwest looking up and thinking, well, you know, if she's up there and she's moving that fast and she's going out west well it can't be that bad we're gonna things are going to improve things will get better and you know i think for eleanor there was always this connection to individuals and to the people and that was really the theme that um, i first noticed about her life was that what made it real was that she cared deeply and for real
0: and you never know if someone's gonna when you actually talk to the historian live up to the uh, myth built around them it sounds like eleanor is someone who does But this is the adult Eleanor that we're used to thinking of. I'm I'm curious, if you were to jump into a time machine, yeah, and if you went back and you met young Eleanor, would you ever suspect that young Eleanor was going to develop into the woman she became? What was young Eleanor like?
1: Well, the child of the alcoholic who you would have met at age 10 or 12 was fearful, was shy, painfully, was barely able to speak in a public format in such a way that you would never have imagined her speaking to millions and nor did she. Uh, She was afraid of everything uh, in her environment. She learned very gradually to overcome her fears. Uh, But one of the things she was most afraid of uh, was herself. She had no sense of what all the energy she had as a Roosevelt. We're talking now about a woman who was the niece of the president of the United States. People always forget that Eleanor Roosevelt was the niece of Theodore Roosevelt. Her father, Elliot, and Theodore Roosevelt, and their two sisters were the children of Theodore Roosevelt Sr., grew up in New York City in in privilege, um, but were very hardworking, very devoted, very um, socially conscious kids. And Eleanor's father and Eleanor's uncle together were always looking out for ways to you know help the newsboys give kids a new start doing things that are associated with the kind of progressive causes we think of with Eleanor but were in their early days um rambunctious they were slightly out of control Eleanor's energy as a young woman as a shy um very careful very uh fearful young woman had no place to go uh, one thing you noticed about her I noticed about her was that she never was, she was underemployed. And I think it gave her an enormous amount of frustration, uh, an enormous amount of um, uh, anxiety, really, you know, pent up anxiety. Another interesting thing to remember is in March of 1913, I'm just going to jump a bit here, but she's still a very young woman, but in Washington with her husband, then Franklin Roosevelt, her fifth cousin, and we'll get back to him and their marriage. But the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Um, Eleanor, as the wife of the soon to be uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, attended the unprecedented, enormous parade in Washington um, for suffrage on Pennsylvania Avenue. She herself at this time was against women having the right to vote. And for the niece of the former you know, president, Theodore Roosevelt, Um, and wife of Wilson's appointed, you know, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, politics was still in every way an all-male, male-only domain. She felt she had no place in it. She felt women were not able at that time to grasp and to hold power in ways that men did. And it was her, um, it took her at least 15 more years before she shook completely out of that phase of her life um, in a letter that she wrote to one of her best friends the day after that parade, uh, she body shamed, we would say today, one of the activists uh, going by calling and several sort of a group of them saying, Oh yes, they were just nice fat ladies. And I thought wow. you know, I kept discovering when I was in my early research an Eleanor Roosevelt as a young woman, especially there's solid evidence in her letters. Um, to her mother-in-law especially, that is to say Franklin Roosevelt's mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, a highly superior, um, good-hearted, extremely uh, well-mannered, extremely well-bred, but highly snobbish and um, anti-Semitic, socially anti-Semitic woman of her time. Um, In Eleanor's letters to Sarah, you see solid evidence of Eleanor being anti-Semitic and from her late 20s, up to the age of, I don't know. I was going to say maybe about the age of forty, but when she began working with Rose Schneiderman at the um, the Women's Trade Union League, that, uh, but I'm not even sure that entirely that it wasn't until 1936 until the mid 30s when she began really looking differently at the world situation and what was happening to Jews worldwide and how corrosive and toxic the rise of anti-Semitism. And fascism in the in the thirties was, and Eleanor came often to these kinds of issues very very slowly, uh, and it's a it's a mark of someone who does things in this very pragmatic way that she learned from her uncle. Um, but she and she had a great deal of energy. She she wanted to move quickly, but she also really understood as she got older, and that things didn't happen fast. And real change mm-hmm. happened slowly, and it was a it was unknown to her when she was a young woman um, that she would take part in any of this. But when you see her in her um, wedding dress, when you see her uh, as a young woman, there is so much constriction. She was so constricted um, by her class, by her the dictates of being a, a lady, a woman of her class and time um learning how to be a lady, learning how to run a household. Uh, she actually always took pride all her life in certain skills she learned from her grandmother about running a household, mm-hmm. about literally about pouring tea. I mean, you know, you see <laughs> you see her way later in life, you know, pouring tea for Khrushchev, laughing, being a, a a certain kind of host. And you see that she really learned she she synthesized her learning as she went along always. She didn't leave things behind. She brought them forward Were the things that were going to be useful to her. But she had to learn a whole world of womanhood that became defunct almost immediately after the First World War.
0: This is a transformation I'm really looking forward to diving into over the course of this interview. Um, But before we do, I want to go back to what made her the young woman she was. And and there are some things you hinted at. you You mentioned her father, Elliot Roosevelt the older brother of President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, He he was a man with his share of demons. He suffered from alcoholism. He had a child out of wedlock. He nearly left his family, and he died following a suicide attempt when he was just 34 and Eleanor was just 10. I'm curious, what, what impact did these childhood experiences have on Eleanor?
1: Well, her grim Dickensian childhood, I think, shows how one of the greatest women in American history ever so gradually learned to transcend her own life and Mm. turn her own pain into purpose and into meaning It, 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 it was grim this was really grim um the cruelty of a mother who could not love her who was so narcissistic so caught up in her own mythology of being one of the most beautiful women in new york and looked upon eleanor as literally ugly and made Eleanor, she had two brothers whom her mother doted on, and she made Eleanor sort of sit on a little stool at her feet while she embraced and kissed and held the brothers. Eleanor was wow. liter- literally abused by her mother. Um, the disgrace of a father, as you just uh, summarized, You know, there's no way to to realize how in the very tight little world of New York, of upper-class New York, His absolute exposure, um, the uh, the disgrace that he dragged his family through um, and that Eleanor constantly was rushing to defend him, um, there's nothing like it, really. Um, His fatal addiction uh, to laudanum, which mixed with alcohol, was part of his final undoing but she would, you know, throw herself into his, his, his pain and his misery. One time he drunk, he broke his leg during a society circus and he had his, the bone was badly set. It had to be re broken and then reset every cry, every, every, you know, every moment of that seared into her. Uh, she, she took on his pain. she, deeply cared for her father and I think really felt like she was his only defender in certain ways. Um, She entered into a kind of dream life with him really uh, where they would talk to each other about the kind of life they were going to live in the future. And they were very delusional. Mm. Uh, Her father sort of drew her charmingly into a delusion, which actually when you read the letters created a strange, almost simulation of the life she did later lead, with another Roosevelt, Mm. another young, handsome, disabled Roosevelt. Um, Mm. But really the deaths of both parents, uh, a younger brother, both her parents and a younger brother were all dead before she was 10 years old. Um, Oh my gosh. She became an orphan and her orphaned adolescence was one of never belonging, was painfully, and not even to other Roosevelts, by the way, to her cousins, One of her cousins, I think, really aptly put it, said she was like a ghost Roosevelt. She didn't really exist Mm. in a real family. She lived with her grandmother up the Hudson, slightly north of where Franklin Roosevelt was born and raised in Hyde Park. Eleanor lived at Tivoli on the river with her grandmother in a classically sort of Adams family spooky haunted house. I mean, really, you looked at this place and you think, you've got to be kidding me. You know, (laughs) I, I went and visited and spent some time there and Found it to be absolutely one of the most haunted, but magical also domains I've ever been in, and uh, there she lived with her alcoholic uncles, who were both, at the one on the one hand, brilliant, smart guys who were literally the first among the first super champions of the game of lawn tennis. They were the you know the Agassi and 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 McEnroe of their day, and yet they were also total drunks. And she would have to go and bail out Uncle Valley one more time. And because Eleanor had had certain experiences, such as going down to Rivington Street and working as a settlement worker, where she taught calisthenics to young, to the young children of, of Italian immigrants, because of her exposure to real people in the real world, she had to go and talk to, you know, Death Sergeant O'Malley to get Uncle Valley out of the jail and had to find out why he was being held and so forth because her grandmother was useless she couldn't speak that wasn't her job to speak to people like that that was you know beneath her but eleanor learned almost immediately that she was the go-between she was the intermediary she was the family member who was going to represent them in the world and she automatically took that role on uh with grace and with with even with humor. Um, and from it, she took this, I think some of her earliest leadership skills, she learned how to mm. take care of herself when her, uh, her aunt was highly narcissistic and aggressive with her sexually aggressive about s- claiming more beau than Eleanor. And when she would sort of shame her that she hadn't danced with anyone that night and swan mm. in with all these favors and things and, and was highly, um, she was the one who, when Eleanor was back from her early schooling in Par- outside of Paris, um, uh, and then in Allenswood School in London, she was the one, her name was Pussy, Aunt Pussy, who destroyed Eleanor, really, by exposing her father's true crimes to her. Um, just oh, wow. because she, the aunt, was jealous that Eleanor had a better dress to wear that night to the dance. She just wow. decided to take off after her and say, This is what your father was really like. He not only died this way, and he not only took these drugs, but he fathered a child on our family maid. And uh, I mean, on the Roosevelt family maid, not the whole family right, maid. Right, right. And, and yeah. described the whole thing to Eleanor in every way shocking and destroying. Every last vestige Eleanor had kept of her father's, uh, of the ideal of her father and without any where to go with it, you know, no no place to continue, no place to go, no pl- nobody else to ask, nobody to, her grandmother met her with silence when she asked questions about it. And she had to go into rooms, Eleanor, as a 17, 18 year old ballrooms and really suffer as a. As she came out in society as a debutante, she had to sort of suffer the shame of knowing that every adult in the room had known her father and known what had happened, and was sort of whispering mm. behind their hands. And here was here was you know Elliot Roosevelt's poor little girl, and in a way, it was the thing that made her determined to be good. Was that that sort of mm. goodness you think of with Eleanor? Is that her father had been bad, you know, it was so bad that she wanted to prove not just that she was good, but that he had been good. And that if he was, if that, mm. that, that goodness was was a trait and quality that you could rely on with Eleanor. And it made her almost to a, the extreme, a goody-goody, you know, a kind of um, yeah. Alice Roosevelt, her nemesis, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, oldest daughter, <laughs> and Eleanor's <laughs> that yes. contemporary, Alice. and uh, cousin Alice, Eleanor's great lifelong rival, um, was constantly chiding Eleanor for, you know, calling her bluff, saying You're not that good after, you know, you're not really that good. You're, you're just, you're just making all this up. And in a way she was, she was beginning to create a myth that she could live with, um, instead of the myth of her father being, um, uh, uh so defeated and so, uh, unfairly in some cases, um, treated by people who, who really didn't know what was going on and exaggerated and, and made him worse than he really was. He had a dear heart, a good soul, but he was your, cl- he was a classic addict. And his, and his mother, I discovered really, really had done a number on him with mercury medicines that women in the South, his mother was Theodore and right, right. grandmother, the Southerner. Mercury medicines had, a, had totally destroyed his system. He was, he was all set up to be a lifelong addict.
0: Wow. So you've, you described Eleanor as a child and the tragic background of her as, as she gets older, as she starts to become a woman, you know, when she turned 21, she marries her fifth cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Fifth cousin means they had a common ancestor alive in the 17th century. So that's (laughs) how close they were. And they settled into married life. What was that relationship like in those early years? And did Eleanor like the role? and marriage she found herself in?
1: Two parts to that, as always with these questions, which are great questions, by the way, because they bring out the the dual nature of Franklin and Eleanor and how we're going to go, we're going to see these young, inexperienced, highly disappointed lovers become the greatest partnership in American political history. And at the early phase that we're talking about, they were really, you got to think of how their wedding, March 17th, 1905, she was given away by the president. They all waited for the president of the United States to show up, first of all. Um, Theodore yeah. Roosevelt gave gave Eleanor away. Um, Franklin was absolutely obsessed with being a, that this was a, a, you know, a great sort of summit of Roosevelty, uh, Rooseveltiana, his ushers war. Roosevelt symbols. The the hmm. the bridesmaids wore uh, the three uh, feathers of the Roosevelt, um, you know, cra- crown, uh, 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 heraldry item. Uh, what's it called? Uh, crest. A crest. Thank you. Escutcheon. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it was all a kind of power couple being sent out into the world, and they go on their honeymoon. And to make a long story short, nothing could have been more disappointing than that honeymoon. Every sort of at every turn, they discovered that they just didn't know how to love each other um, because they were, they just weren't built that way. He was, he was all charm. He was, his mother had raised him as an only child. And Mm -hmm. to get his way, he kind of had to wriggle around behind this all powerful mother. And he learned Mm -hmm. how to be slightly deceptive, slightly sly, slightly charming, slightly flirty but not real. And Eleanor was always looking for the real. She was always looking for the, she was solemn. She was truth seeking. She read, you know, virtuous, wonderful bits of poetry. He was laughing and wanted to carry on. And, you know, uh, he loved alcohol. She hated alcohol. The smell of alcohol brought back all of the nightmare of her her father. I imagine. Yeah, and so a lot of, in, in so many ways, they were incompatible. Their sense of intimacy was very, very different. Uh, He he loved teasing people and being almost a bully, really. Uh, Not almost; he was. He, 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 he lovingly bullied people. He was sort of forever a Groton School sixth former, you know, bullying somebody. (laughs) He, He was very boys' school. He was. He was very old school. Eleanor was actually very progressive in what had happened to her in her life, so she was on the outside of things and. He too had not been liked in school. So one of the things that Mm. they were joined on was as both of them were oddballs, neither of them had, had a group. So it was sort of a, a compact of oddballs. The other thing they realized and it happened on their honeymoon was that they really had a knack for supporting each other when the other was in trouble. And one of the ways that Eleanor got in trouble was sitting down at tea with one of their hosts in Scotland a very powerful woman in Scottish politics. And she said to Eleanor, you know, I really don't understand the difference between your federal and your state government system. How does it work? How do the states, the state and federal governments interact? And what are they really? And Eleanor looked at the woman and realized she literally couldn't answer. She had the niece of the president of the United States at the time could not answer yeah. this question. Just at that moment, as as it was da- her her embarrassment was dawning Franklin bopped in from you know a, another grouse shoot or something and said, "Oh, Babs, you know what it is and he just you know poured out the answer and covered totally for her the next day he had been asked he franklin was asked to go uh to the local fair and introduce the fair or welcome the 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 farmers to the the fair um by giving a speech about how American farmers handled their you know, milk their cow, how they milk their cows or something like that. He got up and made an absolute fool of himself, um, thinking he could charm the crowd with his offhanded remarks. And he just got these stone faces. And when he came down off the platform, he said to, something to Eleanor, like, was it, was it, how bad was it? And she said, it was horrible. You've got to. And then she started telling him what he had to do. Almost immediately you see, this couple beginning to act as a political couple, not as an, mm. intimate, not as a, not as a, uh, a couple of mm. intimates. Franklin was more important than almost everybody except God, in, in in Franklin's mind. Franklin was one of the only and first Americans, or maybe like Franklin, maybe like Jefferson too, in some extent Washington. I guess who you knew he was going to be president, because that was the only thing he was really built to be. And Eleanor yeah. actually understood this about him. Uh, it was another one of their great compatibilities was that she truly believed in him. She truly believed that he had what it was going to take to do what he wanted to do in his life, which was to be president. I mean, it was to be Franklin yeah. Roosevelt as president, really. Raising the children, uh, she was totally outmatched by her mother-in-law's constant pressure on the household of putting in her own Scottish governesses. Eleanor, if she heard a child crying at night, the the third person to get to the crib would be Eleanor. The first would be her mother-in-law. The second would be the Scottish governess. And by the time Eleanor arrived, Castor Oil was already being forced down the throat of her own infant without her permission. Yeah, so she was constantly... Then when then then there's the whole issue of when they moved uptown. Mrs. Roosevelt, that is to say, Sarah Roosevelt, created a complicated, almost Chinese box-like, um, <laughs> double-sided house that the architect right. Charles Platt designed. That made it her life, Eleanor's life, a misery because there were partitions and uh, openings between the houses. Um, Ms. Sarah lived on the left-hand side, The Franklin and Eleanor and their children on the right. But Eleanor would, for instance, put a vase in a certain spot in the uh, mantelpiece, and the next hour she would return to the room, the vase would be moved to another spot. She'd move it back, leave the room, come back. It would be been moved again. <laughs> Always... I mean yeah. it, it's like a comedy, you know? I mean the, the, Yeah,
0: it's it's like everybody loves Raymond except cranked up to eleven and they're in the same house. <laughs> exactly.
1: And meantime, Franklin's political career was beginning. And uh that was something that Eleanor immediately threw in as a political wife, but again, it's sort of frustrated always thwarted. She wasn't quite allowed in, she wasn't quite allowed, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So that's where that's where we leave things. Um, as, as, as the war approaches and a young woman enters their lives, who yeah. Eleanor brought in as her social secretary, because pregnant now for the oh, what fourth time in five years, she really was exhausted at the, at the duties that she was required to perform as a political wife. Um, so she got Lucy Mercer, a, a sort of very similar actually to her own father's, um, uh, a very similar background to Eleanor's in certain ways, Lucy Mercer, um, but a very different kind of person, very cheery, um, sensual, romantic looking, um, red hair, um, soft, soft and charming and easy and fun. And and Franklin would enter the house, um, uh, would leave the house in the morning a- as she was arriving and would you'd hear this, you know, oh, the lovely Lucy and Franklin, <laughs> almost immediately in love.
0: And and of course that is what's going to lead to the massive shock to Eleanor's world in 1918, thirteen years into their marriage, when she discovered Franklin was having an affair with Lucy. Why did Eleanor stay with Franklin through this, and how did this change their relationship?
1: Well, it's a it, it's it's a less complicated question probably than it sounds. But and I'm just going to speak about my belief in it, which is. I think every, and this is subjective. I, you know, you can, you can read this and figure it out for yourself because it does require a couple of this. There's a number of different issues involved in 1918. Um, But I think she stayed in fundamentally because she believed in him. Um, If Mm -hmm. FDR was going to be FDR, if he was going to be who he all who Eleanor had always known and loved him to be Eleanor, was going to be at the heart of his life um there's no way that if Franklin Roosevelt had married a divorced catholic had gotten had gotten divorced and right. married a catholic yeah. woman that he was going to be running for president or that he was going to live the life that it it, it she Lucy Mercer was not the iron frame on which to stretch his life it took Eleanor in this particular case, even to stand up to, and to make, draw new lines with his mother. It was mm. it was Sarah Roosevelt who said to both of them, when they came to her and they sat down and had the family meeting about Lucy Mercer, that she was not going to allow them to divorce. no No Delano, as she put it, divorced. She laid down the law Uh, She wanted Eleanor to stay in, so Eleanor had an ally in her mother-in-law. But Hmm. partly it was also that Eleanor's standing up for Franklin in the end and saying, I will do this on one condition, and the condition was that he never saw Lucy again, I think was Mm -hmm. a setup in a way for, obviously, for years of pain and and discomfort and, and sorrow and unhappiness. Which continued to the very day he died, which we can talk about later. Right. But um, the war was happening, and and that and this is the most right. important. And this is the most important thing. There's two most important things: the war was going on, <laughs> and Franklin had actually okay. capitalized on being assistant secretary of the navy to bring Lucy into the navy department and conduct his affair under official, um, under an official right. guise, actually which is an extraordinary thing when you get down to it because he really was risking everything um, on Lucy. It it shows the depth of his feeling for her. And and the main thing here is Eleanor was by then a volunteer at the Red Cross. This doesn't sound like much, but it was a lot. And it meant that every morning she got up and put on a Red Cross uniform and left the house at 5 a.m. and went down to Union Station. And there in the canteen, which she gradually worked her way up to become the essentially the authority of the the, the highest-ranking officer. In she saw America go to war. She saw millions of young men pass right in front of her, take sandwiches from her, get mail, uh, give her mail, um, tell her something, speak, say say words that that she did not hear, was not going to hear anywhere else, which were words like. I've never seen the sea. What does it look like? I've never been out of my state. How am I going to do? Fear, uh, doubt, terrible anxiety. These men all reminded her, not all, but in. she had flashes all through this of her father and of, of her father in sanatoriums and her father's fears and her father's doubt. She wrote about this. Here she is on her own, exposed to the huge mobilization of the American, of American manhood, all passing through Union Station on their way to places in Newport News, Virginia, and other deb- embarkation points to the war from which many of them were not gonna return. And she was an extremely empowered person in this situation. And she had to go back and change into a dinner dress and be a person who had no opinions at night and she writes like, why can't I just keep wearing my Red Cross uniform and have people hear yeah. what I hear what I had to say? And and, yeah. and there was Lucy being put into positions by Franklin, not particularly powerful, right, right. but but it, it, very competitive, very strange that he would play them off each other. But had he been found out, she would have won in the battle of public opinion. People people thought she was very noble and wonderful that he was that he was cheating on her. Would not have been forgiven, and Mm -hmm. ironically, well, there's two more points. One is, oddly enough, the worldwide the worldwide pandemic of the moment, i.e., the Spanish flu, which came along months, just months after the discovery of the letters of Franklin and Lucy. Eleanor really had to. There was no splitting up. Eleanor was the only one in the house who wasn't infected. Franklin was infected. The kids were infected. One of the nurses was infected. She alone survived the entire pandemic without getting infected at all and was constantly going out in her Red Cross uniform, bringing food to people and other. I mean, Washington was really hard hit because of the um, troop encampments around Washington where the disease was was rampant. So Spanish flu kept them together. Um, But finally, and it. You know, it's somewhat, it's really the, to me, historically, biographically, it's the pivot, which is that 1918 and Lucy Mercer and the First World War and the Spanish flu for all their importance are nothing or are lesser, the lesser events, not nothing. They're the lesser events to the great big Mount Everest that changed everything and is the pivot on which the entire Roosevelt epic turns, which is polio, as it appeared in the summer of 1921 on the island of Campobello.
0: So I, I've, I've had this vague sense that pre-affair and post-affair Eleanor are different people. Yes. It sounds like it might be more pre-affair or pre-polio, post-polio Eleanor. What, what's your take on that? What totally impact good. do these events have on Eleanor?
1: Yeah, I think yeah. polio had a much more profound before and after impact than than Franklin and Lucy. Um, and uh, although before and after the war are two totally different Eleanor. So the war yeah. had an enormous before and after. Um, but polio before polio, Eleanor felt in a way that I think she kind of shivered at every breeze that came her way, every cool breeze that came her way wow. from Franklin. After polio mm-hmm she had become wise enough to know that there were so many things she could not. Well, Lucy helped her understand there were things that she could not do for her husband. And that helped Mm. her oddly enough, realize that she could not be the person who was going to help Franklin regain his legs. He needed other people at that time to help him figure out how to do this. And it was a 10 year process. And he, absolutely found people along the way. And by that time, by from 1921 with polio, Louis Howe always remained the, the third in the triangle with Eleanor and Franklin, mm. but gradually mm. with others coming in to both of their lives. And as Eleanor polio pushed Eleanor out the door in ways that she feared and really still resisted, but it pushed her out the door and into politics, into Bringing Franklin's name into in 1920, the year before he got polio, Franklin Roosevelt was the vice presidential candidate for for the Democratic Party. Right, right. With, yeah. with Cox, so that right when they lost when they lost in, in 1920, when the Democrats lost, crushed by the Republicans and and the idea of nor- going back to normalcy and and you right. know Harding's you know in, in, absolutely perfect pitch understanding that the American people wanted nothing to do uh, with the League of Nations, with, with, with which Franklin and mm-hmm. Cox were, were very strongly campaigning on. They absolutely expected Franklin to be the next presidential candidate in 1924. He was the next expected right. member. So that in 1920, yeah. summer of 21, when he got... Port- Polio, Polio. he had to, it all had to be presented to the press. They all had to, It it was. he was a public figure of a kind that meant that when they finally, when Louis Howe and Eleanor finally did all the kabuki and the stage managing of bringing him back to New York, an interesting choice, by the way, because the greatest polio doctor was in Boston, but New York was his (laughs) power base. New York was where his voters, his people, his institutions, his his power base was. That's why they came back to New York. Eleanor was a big part of that choice. She was also a big part of why he stayed in the city instead of, as Sarah wanted, being pulled back into a sort of young invalidism out in Hyde Park, which is what had happened to his father. His father had been an invalid when he was a child. He didn't want to have anything to do with that. They found a way of his beginning his recovery in the city But most of all, they became, they continued as a power couple in, by the way, one of the most important cities in the world at that time. 1920s New York was the financial and political capital of the world. That's where all the excitement was. And they were still very big part of that. But Eleanor now had to go out and really put the face on it and bring the name into the public. And as the 20s unfolded and as Franklin's Recovery took very strange directions. Off he went on a houseboat. <laughs> off he went to, you know, he found this strange little ramshackle resort in, you know, way backwoods Georgia, and it yeah, was the magic fountain space. of youth. And all, all these different, they went into totally different directions, but maintained this partnership. That was they were sort of in separate colonies. They had separate camps. They had separate people. They were depending on different people. They both understood at a fundamental level that they needed to give each other freedom. They needed to give each other space. It was very modern in a way. Uh, it's very modern, yeah. became a very modern marriage. And Eleanor's uh empowerment in women's politics in New York was the beginnings of the Eleanor Roosevelt that we now know.
0: It sounds like polio starts transforming Eleanor into more of a political force for her husband. But then when does she start to become a political force for her own ideas, the vocal uh, person that we think of, the modern Eleanor, the, the later Eleanor that we talked about at the top of the show?
1: She became uh, fairly quickly a powerful member, partly because of, her, of the women's division of politics in New York. She joined Al Smith's campaigns for governor and for president yeah. uh she gained power in those roles she learned the functions of politics the levers the 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 machines the the way it all worked she became incredibly experienced and powerful in in forming how to form coalitions and especially how to organize women women were the new thing in american politics in the 20s they had gotten the vote in 1919 and Eleanor mm-hmm. was a; she had learned an enormous amount on the campaign of 1920 on a westward going campaign uh, train, um, uh, really on on the ground kind of um, training. All of her New York State organizing was done with auto, with an automobile, uh, with two friends of hers mm-hmm. who were involved in New York State politics, Marion Cook and Nan D- Nick, Nan, Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman, and it was interesting to see it is a fascinating sort of lesson in how technology drives things, but she learned, Eleanor learned how to use a car as a political tool, how to gain, how to get people's attention when she came into a town, how to, how to drive a certain way. They covered one car in a teapot when she was going out, (laughs) um, that did, you know, puffed out smoke and, the speaker would then <laughs> out of the top and start railing against yeah. the Republicans and the Teapot Dome uh, scandal.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, I get it now.
1: <laughs> they were implicating Franklin's um, great rival in the family, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., who was then running for governor. And it was pretty low, actually, of Eleanor to go after her, uh, her cousin this way yeah. because he wasn't really um, a Teapot Dome um, scandal. Right. He he was he was innocent of that, but he was running on the Republican ticket, and that's what she was. They were you could tag the Republicans with. Um, Alice actually Roosevelt at that point made a um, very interesting comment saying, um, "Well, I'm going to have a car, and I'm going to put Lucy Mercer. Uh, I'm going to make a papier mache Lucy Mercer and stick it on the top of my car." He would, and would, the point of which actually is fascinating, which is that if Franklin had not gotten polio, um, he would have been open in 1924 and 1928 had he run for president in those years. Very open to Republicans calling him out on the Lucy Mercer scandal, mm-hmm. that he would not have been free that of It was known. Him. But because yeah. of polio, it was never mentioned ever again in terms of his political life. He was immune. Wow. Polio Im- immunized him. It did not immunize him to people attack saying he was crazy because they thought polio victims were people, people really, right,
0: didn't, they, they just attacked yeah. him on polio.
1: Yeah. People, they, there were lots of campaigns by Republicans and extremists trying to tag him with all kinds of things um, besides just simply being unable to walk, but w- much worse than that. Um, syphilitic, um, all sorts of things that, that, that they associated with polio. In any case, um, Eleanor's moment of, the na- of walking onto the national stage, really occurred as a first lady of um, New York politics when Franklin did run for governor. Was made, Al Smith made room for him? Um, encouraged him to run for governor. He was reluctant. He had a few more years of rehab to do. Uh, Eleanor made that happen. She pushed him into it. Um, she was behind the scenes power in making that happen. Uh, there was a lot of resistance uh, down in Warm Springs and Eleanor was making it happen. And she was equally ambivalent um, for all that about Franklin becoming governor and and uh, for about his running for president. She was desperately afraid that he might not make it. Although she was even more afraid that he would because it would mean that she would have to stop her own independent uh, po- political uh, work and join him again as a political wife. And I think that her sacrifice uh, in becoming First Lady of New York and then in becoming First Lady of the United States, it, it's funny to think of it that way, but that is very much what it was. She she had to stop being Eleanor Roosevelt politician and had to start being Eleanor Roosevelt matriarch, political wife, mistress of the White House, And it wasn't enough for her. She immediately, I mean, one of the very first things she did in the White House, one of her first trips out of the White House, and it was the first of thousands of them, was um, to Fort Hunt, Virginia, in um, the spring, the first spring uh, of 33, um, with Louis Howe, actually, who was the one who, it it was in May of 33. Mm -hmm. The bonus marchers had come to Washington um, for the second time. They were encamped and... They were not getting what they wanted. And uh, Louis wanted her to, wanted Eleanor, knew that Eleanor could walk into that tent and make a difference. And Eleanor was completely baffled as to what Louis had in mind. He actually (laughs) curled up in the back seat of the convertible they had driven out together to Virginia and said, I'm going to take a nap. Go on in there and talk to the boys. She walked into the tent. She started introducing herself. Within about 20 minutes, Eleanor Roosevelt was surrounded by 75 or a hundred men in their world war one uniforms and they were all singing songs that World war one songs that she remembered from her days at the campaign at the canteen in union station that she had learned and the men were absolutely smitten by the way she responded and there was a great deal of sentiment of course in it but there was also the reality that she said i'm going to bring back to my husband tomorrow um uh, tonight, sorry, tonight, um, yeah. the, the the demands that you are asking, and I think he'll hear what you what 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 you have to say. And they loved her so much uh, that one of them was one of the vets was quoted in the Washington newspapers the next day, and the headline was "Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife," and it was the beginning of Eleanor's kind of first of everything her her list of of firsts as first lady over the twelve years she was. The longest serving, of course, uh, First Lady in the White right. House would eventually run, you know, almost as long as her FBI file. There was she was the first one to bring press conferences um, that had women only in them to the daily business of, of reporting on the White House and to bring women reporters into um, the White House to write about substan- substantive issues, not just about tea time. Um, Right. She was the first president's wife who'd ever written syndicated column herself. Um, She was the first to go down into all male worlds like the coal mines and uh, Mm -hmm. no other member really of the administration was as psychologically pervasive as Eleanor. People really felt her presence in their lives and in the country. That was not true of a number of other first ladies. Um, who came before her, even immediately before her. Um, Eleanor was everywhere, um, and and the, that was really the reason um, that, and the fact she cared, and that she, you know, things would happen, she would bring back to, she was her husband's eyes and ears. Um, that's why the Republicans learned to fear and to hate her, even, which was that she made things happen. She was a force. She wasn't just, you know, words and kumbaya. She actually did things. Um, she mobilized democratic voters. She turned the 1932 uh, victory into the 1936 landslide, or she helped to by mm-hmm. especially by um, persuading many African Americans to leave the Republican Party, which their historic uh, identification had been. African American voters had historically voted Republican. In 1936, yeah. they overwhelmingly voted with a massive coalition, creating a landslide in '36 that um, gave Roosevelt, I think, every state but Vermont, as I recall.
0: So Eleanor, very quickly, is the woman that we think of her as first lady. And you mentioned the soldiers loved her. You mentioned the Republicans hated her. What did the rest of the country think of this vibrant, dynamic, new first lady, something they'd never seen before?
1: She was certainly one of the most beloved and at the same time most reviled women of the entire century. I mean, there was people felt that she was interfering. The criticisms were, you know, she's interfering. She's meddling. She should stay at home. Um, She's using her husband as a screen. Behind which she was supposedly plotting her own takeover of the U.S. government, she activated unbelievable um, hatred in the South. There was a belief um, that the FBI actually put a uh, investigation onto of something called Eleanor Clubs, which were black housekeepers who would get to who were supposedly banding together to plot to doing conspiracies to do things all at the same time, for instance, um, not unlike the, um, the movie, the help um, certain pies, certain things were going to be baked into pies and served at the table on certain days or, or, or black servants were going to all be on the streets of um, Memphis, Tennessee and push their white owners into the street. When cars were going by all sorts of insane ideas, none of which were true. Um, She was, Eleanor was the ceaseless, you know, butt of jokes, uh, her teeth, you know, her, her her large tombstone, Teddy Roosevelt buck teeth, uh, her chin or chinlessness, her cooking, her clothes, uh, pretty much everything. But extraordinarily through all this, no threat to Eleanor, uh, an, an astonishing um, mm. she the, the kind of criticism, jokes, um, vileness she had to endure, um, was nothing. Um, com- I mean, what people have in, even in the recent horrific climate of the last 10 politically toxic years, nothing sometimes compared to what she went through. And yet she figured out how to let it all flow off her back. And I think it partly as to who she was even growing up as an outsider and as a, as an oddball and someone who was not looking to the world for approval. Um, She knew what she was about by the time she was first lady and she wasn't going to let people get to her.
0: So in 1945, another big shock to the system, Franklin Roosevelt dies, but Eleanor lives another 18 years. How did her influence and role in politics change after she was no longer the first lady?
1: Um, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to just give one more word about FDR before sure. before we leave him, because I think it's important to remember, which is that in some odd way, history has attempted is attempt. Does it does attempt to cut down FDR to size, um, you know, and particularly in response in regards to Eleanor's you know, her poor Eleanor's unfaithful husband? Um, and this was partly mm-hmm. Joe Lash, actually. Uh, the author of Pulitzer Prize winning author of Eleanor and Franklin, which was a sort of the popular text about the two, um, about the couple as a as, as an intimate portrait that became a famous television series with um, Jane Alexander and Edward Herman in the 70s. Um, Franklin was presented kind of as a bad soap opera husband, but there's almost no describing in 2023 how great and important he was to the world, to liberalism, to democracy, but especially to freedom. I mean, we we would be speaking German now. I truly believe we'd be speaking German and or Japanese if it were not for Franklin Roosevelt specifically. You, there's He made terrible mistakes um, in turning the Japanese. He made terrible mistakes as president. One thing you have to remember the presidency under Hoover was an untouchable executive you know you you would have about the same success um having you know hoover um look after you as i would have um getting the you know chairman of verizon to talk about my bill um (laughs) but roosevelt actually performed this unbelievable act of magic when you think about it which is that He actually made people think you and me and our neighbors think that he did care about our bill, that he would talk to us about our bill. This incredibly effete um, Hudson Valley snob, this American executive convinced the American public of the 1930s uh, and, and early 40s that he was working for them and for him and her and you and me and very progressive era idea. Um, but also a very electronic um era radio concept that he was right there with you, and that was the magic of the fireside chats and um he, his immensity his omnipotence was unbelievable and completely not understandable in today's media environment but i'm and i'm the perception of him that's dragged you know into the television age and so forth um the psychodramas the da 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 the Uh, all all of that I you know it's it's all fine it's true in some ways I'm saying all this about Franklin before going on to the more important question of Eleanor's life after just to remind us that this is what she loved about him when she left the Mm -hmm. White House she was writing and I you know it still kind of actually makes me honestly choke up a little bit she was writing to her lover Lorena Hickok Now, later in their relationship when they were no longer as intensely involved, but still very close. And she was writing to her on the last night in the White House as everything had been packed up and they'd had their last meal. This is after Franklin's death and they're moving out and Truman's moving in. and, And she said, you know, I always felt safe here because Franklin was president. And I thought, you know, that here's this woman who seemed pretty invulnerable in a way at that time in her life. But for her to be kind of describing her partner her husband her her really old 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 friend her old 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 lover uh, and cousin as somebody who made her feel safe because he was in charge of the world i mean i don't know that says everything to me about how she thought about him and, and and what he was the greatest thing that happened to her as she herself said when she left the white house she declared that the story was over and she kind of ran away from reporters but she did say, when she was appointed by truman to go to london for the the early un meeting she she arrived in london and the reporters asked her how she felt and what it was like now being franklin's widow and being on her own she said it is absolutely delightful i get to speak for myself She'd been muzzled you know for years for twelve years. Yeah. she had had to watch every word now Franklin was very very uh i'd say liberal haha, but really liberal in his sometimes she would bring a column to Franklin uh and say, "Is this going to give you trouble and he'd read the column and he'd she'd have said something about his policy towards the um the sleeping car porters and how he wasn't letting them come to Washington to march and how he was fighting them and so forth, and how he really should be taking uh, uh, the black civil rights movement much more seriously than he was, that sort of thing. And he'd just look at it and he'd say, you know, if someone, if this people think, you know, you're right and I'm wrong, fine, let them, this is, this is America. And you have, you know, you say what you want to say, Babs, go for it. He he was very, he never, he never censored her. He was not, he was not interested in controlling um, that part of the story. He knew that she was, in his, had his best interests, She returned to private life after his death and she was less a president's widow than she was an, uh, an autonomous presence for whom there was no precedent in American life. She was expected to fade away quietly. Um, but she didn't, you know, that she didn't go into mourning. She sourced new lines of energy to become truman's post-war champion i mean he looked to her right away as the champion of international human rights um and mm-hmm. she became an enemy of the fbi and the kkk and the most serious day-to-day voice of democratic opposition under eisenhower um she became her own institution she wasn't a derivative institution of the presidency the way you know first ladies can be um, after uh, after the white house when they they get to keep their franking privileges or whatever, but she was something new. She was, and she remained for the rest of her life actively in the present creating and building on what she had done the day before and what she was going to do tomorrow. And it wasn't about the past. She left the past behind. It's very rare in American history.
0: She almost sounds like in her post-presidency she was bigger than like today's presidents are in their post-presidencies you know like what would you say like clinton obama you know bush like they kind of fade away but she stayed on the stage it sounds like
1: absolutely and and stayed vital and in a way one of her geniuses was that um she these all through these years she uh, she served universal universal ideals by appealing mm. non-politically um, to the fundamental needs of human beings, I mean, she didn't run for. Po- she was constantly given, "Please run for Senate of New York. Please run as Vice President. Please." Run. She she didn't. She knew that the minute she got put into a political role, she would stop having yeah. power universally, and it was this that that you know she she made a, an inno- she herself somehow always remained incomplete in the years after Franklin. Uh, in other words, she didn't she was nomadic. She settled in different places. She lived in a hotel at one point, she lived in another house. Mm-hmm. She didn't until the very very end when she fell in love with her doctor and moved in with him and then the woman who became his wife, a very unusual relationship and and situation and arrangement genuine and and very real actually and very Eleanor um in its you know in, in its details but but she was always in flight she was always going somewhere she was drawn across immense landscapes continent to continent um you know to the next isolated airfield and the next meeting and the next ambassador and the next and you know through it all she was just sailing into the wind and you know we're all on trial to show what democracy means is what she kept repeating. And I I, mm. I I find this part of her life so moving, partly because I'm now 65 and I, I don't work and think as much the way I did when I was in my 30s and 40s by making a to-do list and making sure I get everything done. <laughs> Eleanor kind of yeah. is got to be the same way at the end of her life, which is that it wasn't so much that she did everything. But she kind of did it as it came up. It's funny to actually chart it as you look at it carefully in a granular way day to day. She wasn't really like it's what it's whoever came to her that day or whatever was on the agenda. She would just sort of pick it up and keep going, moving it a little farther along. She didn't have plans. She didn't have goals. She didn't have what you think of as executive you know, skill sets. It she just kind of moved in her by intuition. She's a person who's working always outside the center on the community, on the ideas of the community. And then it becomes, you know, you're going from Rivington Street and the immigrants of the world to Eleanor Roosevelt, the end of her life, the United and all the United Nations. And there she is in charge of the creation of the most important document since. Uh, I mean, the fact that it wasn't ratified by Congress always makes it less less valid to some. But the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the one document yeah. we have that tells us what it is to be a human being and what rights we have. And it's, it was intended to prevent a recurrence of the horrors and atrocities that occurred in World War II. And that yeah. that is a extraordinary idea when you think about it, that in 1946, I mean, she had seen when she went to London and she flew to Germany and she flew to the continent and she saw the suffering of displaced persons and she fought with the Russians about what should happen to these people. She fought with Vyshinsky. Um uh, He said they were traitors and that they should all be returned to their countries. She, obviously she objected. Um, it was totally foreign to us democracy to force anyone to repatriate or to go somewhere. And it forced the question of what, what were, what, what was a human being? What what did rights did they have? What if they were stateless? Where where should they go? Where could they go? Um, she brought to this body, which is a small group at first of 18 nations or the representatives of 18 nations, and then a slightly larger group, all the questions of how to create a document that would lay out um, the rights of human beings and. The different languages, the different cultures. She was the one who had to moderate and to bring everybody together when they were um, fighting, and when they were objecting, and when they were resisting. And the essential questions of it are relevant today in every sense. But it does point out what is fundamental to human dignity, to human well-being. Um, you know what access we should have to housing, to employment. Um, what about food, physical safety, all the issues that she created a culture of human dignity to solve and to place in their proper order and keeping all these delegates at the table focused, um, listening to one another required uh, a person that I mean there was no one else. Everybody agreed who could have done it besides um, Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt. It lists, the the, the Universal Declaration lists 30 human rights, uh, freedoms, including the right to free speech, right to asylum, right Mm -hmm. to freedom from torture, um, the right to be a citizen, um, the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. But it took three years and 3,000 hours um, for this document to be created, and when it was finally ratified by the UN... Um, the delegates rose to give Eleanor Roosevelt a standing ovation, um, never done before, um, that and nothing like
0: it since. What are some of the causes that Eleanor was passionate about, where she really moved the needle, and what are some that she really wanted to fight for, but just couldn't quite make headway, and why?
1: I think the biggest one is is um, equal rights and equality uh, and desegregation, um, there's no question that that she, in every aspect of her work in the civil rights movement of the 1940s, uh, which is where she really began to have influence, um, you know, the, the, the concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where Marian Anderson, who'd been um, prevented, the great uh, singer, opera singer, had been prevented from singing at Constitution Hall. Um, And she, Eleanor got um, Harold Ickes to work out a way that she could sing the concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial where she sang my country tis of thee and moved an entire, there were hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial and the reflecting pool often thought of as the first civil rights um, uh, gathering. Um, This was in Easter day, 1939. Eleanor's participation in that was kind of a. She resigned from the DAR, which she had a member. You know, she was a lifetime member of, and uh, or ancestral member of. Um, all that was symbolic, but what she really began doing was urging Roosevelt to let the sleeping car porters, four hundred thousand strong, come and march on Washington. That she made clear to him he had to listen. Made clear to people in the administration. Roosevelt had a very racist um uh, Steve early uh, otherwise i would say very good um press uh uh, uh, uh not press agent press uh
0: press secretary press
1: secretary thank you um uh, and, and decent guy but but a racist lived in the south and 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 highly racist in in, in ways that that uh, you know you read you are, are quite repellent now when you read read about him Eleanor understood how to how to give him leeway when he needed it, but then also had to be very sharp and push him to do certain things. And so, I think you see her there in that world, in that time, slow walking. Sometimes there were certain um, Mary McLeod Bethune was one of the black educators and black activists that she was very close with, um, you know, and and who would always they would sort of push back and Eleanor would say, no, we have to do this more slowly. And Mary McLeod Bethune would say, Eleanor, you can't slow walk us anymore. We've got to move forward. And mm. you're right. We have to, she, so she found her tempo, um, as she had done in the labor movement with women, as she had done in, um, uh, community building, uh, such as at Arthur Dale, she saw what she could do. She tried to push as hard as she could. Um, but she, some, sometimes failed. She would do things as first lady that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Example, there was a terrible um, sort of reform school for black girls uh, on the outskirts of River Road in um, Maryland, I believe it was. No, actually it was in the district. Um, And she brought, had gone out to inspect this facility, which is just a horror. And she asked the Girls there who were between the ages of 13 and 19, I think, about 30 girls were being kept there um, to come to the White House as her guests for tea. And she someone found some nice dresses and whatnot, and they all dressed and came to the White House for tea. This was treated by the press as if Eleanor Roosevelt had turned the White House into a bordello. They were treated as as if they were prostitutes, as if they were uh, as if Eleanor Roosevelt had broken every canon of american um ladyhood and white house decorum wow. it was total crap the way it was reported but um and eleanor you know hung hung tough and she was she kept it all moving and and the and you know did, did played it all out never bothered her but it there was it wasn't ham you know something something was missing there so some somehow that that got out of her control the whole question of the Holocaust and the, and the Roosevelt's is a difficult one. She tried hard to get people out of out of uh, uh, Europe, and she succeeded in certain ways. She tried hard with the St. Louis and with other ships. Some she succeeded on, some she didn't. is um, She's sort of 50-50, uh, batting 500 uh, almost throughout mm-hmm. that period, and knowing that for every gain there was a loss, and she was sickened by it. She was sickened by Franklin's decision to intern Americans who of Japanese origin and to take away their businesses and their houses and to put them into concentration camps. She appealed to Attorney General Biddle. She appealed to Franklin himself. Biddle himself appealed to Franklin saying, look, Mr. President, the, the finally, the, the worst thing about this executive order is that presidents in future will be able to invoke it as a precedent. And indeed, yeah. we in our own time saw in 20, was it 2017, uh the um former administration uh invoking it as a uh precedent for uh separating families at the border. So you know Franklin made terrible mistakes. Eleanor tried to correct them. Um she was not always successful. She was she was very aware in that particular case. She went Franklin sent her to the camps uh, in uh, Manzanita in Arizona uh, in other places. Mm-hmm. She met with Japanese Americans who were there. She, as a first lady, did something quite extraordinary. She went to 18 uh, Pacific islands, some of them on the front lines during the second world war. It was a sort of a secret trip at first, but then became public and, it was an extraordinary trip that she made, against first against Admiral Halsey's um, wishes, but then she had him, um, Bull Halsey, you know, eating out of the palm of her hand, and saying to reporters <laughs> when she left, he'd never seen anyone like this uh, in in, ba- in a battle zone, and how much she had inspired and comforted and brought um, morale um, to these troops during those trips she made a special point whenever she went into a hospital and she just you know literally went to every single bed spoke to every man how are you where are you from oh i know your town oh can i bring a message to home to your wife or your husband or your sister or your brother um she made a point in all those hospitals of finding the american soldiers who were japanese who often were some of the mm. bravest in our, in, in, in World War II history, certain units were exclusively Japanese Americans. Yeah. Um, and she yeah. always made a point of going and finding them and commending their service and making sure photographs were taken so that people understood that they were part of the war effort too. It was sort of a wow. way to expatiate a bit for yeah. the tiniest way, what yeah. we, what we had done. She was pretty successful in the camps on her visits there. Um, but it was a mess and she knew it. And so that was always a great sorrow
0: to her. How did Eleanor change the role and perception of first ladies? What's her legacy? So
1: before her women had been in the way, you know, the very phrase women in the white house meant something different after Eleanor. Um, before Eleanor, they'd been part of the furniture. After Eleanor, the First Lady was both an input to the presidency and an outgoing proxy for the people. She was the go-between. Uh, the First Lady was the go-between between the people and the president. Um, and that's, I think, you know, her other great innovation was movement. Action was the key to her agenda, and she was a dynamo of energy forever on the move she meant she meant it when she you know said i'm going i'm going to she went everywhere and she logged forty thousand miles a year um there's no question that she set a record or set a tone as first lady of interest and curiosity um i think interest and curiosity in people and in their relationship to their own government being powerful she speaks to us, I think, today, um, and this is where her legacy, I think, is most vivid right now about the fight we're now engaged in for survival and the expansion of a multiracial pluralist democracy. You know, what are what are Americans? Um, what are patriots? Why is a minority power seeking absolute control over the majority? Eleanor has everything to teach us, I think, about um, this new fight for our right to vote, Uh, for gender equality, for America's place in a global international world. And I think she stands for fearlessness. And I think we're very afraid as a people now. Um, She stands for compassion. She stands for service, dedication, um, the hard work that will be needed as we expand our multiracial pluralist democracy to include more people, because it's the only way our economy and our society will survive and, 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 and indeed triumph. Um, for Eleanor, I don't think it was a set of institutions of democracy. I think it was always an ethic. It was about how we treat Mm -hmm. each other. Um, it's about reciprocity. It's about each of us has to ask, you know, how, you know, do I treat my neighbor with dignity and respect? Um, do I treat the clerk at the post office with dignity and respect? Um, it's about how it's about how we disagree with each other. Um, it's about, you know, nothing ever gets settled. Finally, uh, and in fact, that's one thing she learned how to do was to kind of leave things unsettled um, in, in her own in her own life. Um, you know, she never she never resolved things. I, it was a curiosity to me as a biographer. I thought, oh, I have to wrap this all up. This all has to mean something. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, because it's Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, the truth is, Eleanor never really wrapped it up. She didn't. Complete things, uh, but she does encourage us to contend with hard truths and not to turn away from them. And that's what her leadership is. It's 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 as much to do with ruthless honesty when facing herself um, as it was in facing down the Russians on whether or not war refugees had to be returned to their homelands.
0: Um, and, so- and that was actually going to be my last question. Yeah. What lessons in leadership can we learn from Eleanor?
1: I think really one of the biggest ones is her willingness is, is the willingness not to have the answers. Um it, mm-hmm. it, not to cling to what seems safe, um, to not resolve every issue, um and and to find a way through listening um toward patience, toward humility, toward clarity and charity, um, and to be resilient and to have patience and forbearance beyond um, anything you've ever had before when listening to people who are other than you and to find serendipity and spontaneity and, and, and humor and joy in, in the daily practice of your life. Because that's one thing that we don't really ever think too much, think about with her is that, you know, she's sort of a school mom. She's sort of homework. She's sort of spinach. She actually was a very free, free and, loving and delighted person at life itself. She loved life. And um, her friend, Pauli Murray, um, the black activist, who was one of her great sort of critic, criticizer and also collaborators once said about her, the measure of her greatness was her capacity for growth. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that's really what, what, what it is, is that she grew, she grew and grew and grew and with her, the country grew and, with her people around her grew. And I think, you know, if we can keep doing that, we will be, we will find a kind of, a kind of, the kind of greatness that she, that she showed us the way to.
0: If you've enjoyed this interview with David, please consider picking up Eleanor or checking out his other books at davidmichaelis.com. Thank you so much for your time, David. This was a great conversation. And he's so
1: much fun. Really appreciated it it always kind of chokes me up to get back into the world of Eleanor.
0: And uh, it was really moving, actually. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast, or on Substack, Abridged Presidential Newsletter. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Up next, I'm gonna mix up the schedule a little bit. On Tuesday, July 4th, I will bring you a bonus episode on a politician I've really wanted to get more into, Henry Cabot Lodge, and his game-changing friendship with Theodore Roosevelt, when I interview historian Lawrence Jurdum on his new book, The Rough Rider and the Professor. And then, the very next day, Wednesday, July 5th, we will resume the narrative. Roosevelt's dead. Vice President Harry S. Truman is sworn in. And, to paraphrase Eleanor, he's the one in trouble now. Those are both coming up next on Abridged Presidential Histories.